This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning, family. We want to welcome you to our early morning devotion. And uh, that was a beautiful song that we just listened to, how God is calling us to be fishers of men. That's what I want to be. How about you? You know what the difference is between a fisherman and a fisher of men? A fisherman catches fish that are alive and puts them to death. But a fisher of men catches fish that are dead and brings them back to life. Amen? God has called us to share life with the world that is dying in sin. What a great privilege. Uh, before we pray and get into our message this morning, I just want to say it's been a wonderful joy and a great privilege sharing this time with you each morning. And for all the people that I got the chance to meet with and fellowship with, it's been a wonderful blessing. And I pray that as we get ready to part ways this morning, that by God's grace, if we never see each other again, we'll meet each other in God's eternal kingdom. Amen? That we might be with the Lamb on that sea of glass, singing that song of victory of our deliverance from this world into God's eternal kingdom. We're almost there, friends. And so let's move forward by God's grace and let's finish with a bang. Amen? I invite you to bow your heads as we pray this morning. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, so much for the rich experience we've had this weekend and how you've given us this opportunity to, to press together with each other, to get to know you better, to learn how we can be faithful in these last days as you have always been faithful to us. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we pray that our hearts and minds will be open and receptive. Give us ears to hear your voice and a heart to know your heart and a resolute determination to do not our will, but your will. Please speak to us now is our humble prayer in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Amen. This morning we're going to continue our study from yesterday as we've been discussing the final forerunners of the last day. And so I want to begin by sharing and beginning with the verse that we actually read yesterday. And so I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, the Bible says this. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Yesterday, we talked about what it means to be great in the sight of the Lord. And we saw that spiritual greatness was illustrated and seen in the life of the first forerunner of the Lord, John the Baptist. And we learned yesterday that he was great, number one, because of what he said and thought about himself. Now, he didn't say much about himself, but what he did say about himself shows us three specific things that makes us great. And do you remember that? Let's review. Number one, John the Baptist was confident in his identity. 
Number two, he was secure in his simplicity. And number three, he was genuine in his humility. humility. That's what John said and thought about himself. This was the content of the character of John. Now, his mission, as we read here, was to simply prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. You see, friends, in ancient times, when a king prepared for a journey to a specific destination, he would send forerunners ahead of his royal chariot, and their mission was very simple. Their mission was to clear the king's highway to prepare the way for the coming of the king. And these forerunners were commissioned to level the steep places of the highway, to fill in the potholes and remove all the stones and the obstacles so that the king could have a, a, an easy and smooth travel to the specific destination that he was heading without any hinder, hindrances. And this is what the forerunner would do to prepare the way of the Lord to make his path straight, to prepare people for the coming of the king. That was the purpose and the mission of John the Baptist, and so it is, it is ours today. Because that same King Jesus that came the first time is coming back the second time, and in these last days, he's looking not only for one, but a whole generation of forerunners to prepare the world for the return of King Jesus. And it's simply by giving the message. It's not us that prepares anyone, but it's the message that God is wanting to speak in and through us that will prepare people for the coming of Christ. This is what John was called and chosen to do. He was not an alarmist. He was not a sensationalist or an extremist. He was a revivalist. This high and holy purpose is what he lived for. You see, John the Baptist understood that it wasn't about himself, but it was about the one that was coming after him, and he knew his role. His role was that he was not the king. He was simply the one that was called and chosen to prepare the way for the king. John simply looked upon himself as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he was great in the sight of the Lord because he was small in the sight of himself. But friends, it really doesn't matter what we think or say about ourselves, but rather what we think and say about Jesus. Amen? And more so what Jesus thinks and says about us. And so this morning I want to highlight the second and third reason why John the Baptist was so great in the sight of the Lord. Yesterday we talked about the first reason and that was what he thought about himself. Today we'll discuss the second and third reason which are what John said about Jesus and number three what Jesus said about John. The Bible tells us in the book of John, chapter 10, verse 41, that John did no miracle, but all things that John spoke of Jesus were true. You see, John was not miraculous, but rather the beautiful words he spoke about Christ were true. And so the question I want to ask is, what did John say about Jesus? What was the message that he gave to the world concerning the Messiah? Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of John, and we're going to go to the first chapter. And we're going to see, friends, that John said many things about Jesus, many wonderful things, but there are two that I want to share with you this morning. So we're going to John, what chapter did I say? John chapter 1, and notice what it says in verse 29, very familiar verse. John chapter 1 and verse 29. The Bible says, the next day John, what? Saw, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, 
Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. One of the first things that John said about Jesus when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb. He has come to take away the sin of the world. Now, friends, in this passage, there's a lot of deep, beautiful theology. But one beautiful, practical point we can gain from this is that John saw Jesus first, and then he called others to look for themselves. You see, friends, in order for us to point out Jesus and speak accurately concerning him, we have to see him first. We have to see Jesus with our eyes first before we can proclaim him with our lips second. We must see him with the eye of faith before we can proclaim him with the words of faith. And that's what John did in, th in this passage. And one thing clear that John said about Jesus is that he is the lamb coming to remove sin, to take away the sin of the world. And friends, this salvific statement is founded upon the theology of the sanctuary. You see, we cannot fully understand the complete holistic salvation of Christ without understanding Christ's work in the sanctuary, in the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place. You see, Jesus is not just the lamb that died for us in the outer court, but he's also our great high priest that ever lives to intercede for us in the holy and most holy place. You see, the lamb had to die in the outer court, but its blood had to be applied in the holy and most holy place. And that understanding helps us to see what it means when it talks about the lamb taking away the sin. It's because he died in the outer court and he blots it out, he removes it, he takes it away in the most holy place in the investigative judgment. And John saw Jesus as the fulfillment of that sanctuary message. Jesus was the reality of which that shadowy type would point to. And so that's one of the first things I want to share with you of what, G what John said about Jesus. He is the lamb that removes sin of a statement that is founded upon the theology of the sanctuary. Now notice something else John said about Jesus as we go to chapter 3 and verse 29. Notice John chapter 3 and verse 29. Here's what John says. And it's interesting. He describes the Messiah in the context of marriage. John 3, 29, John said, but he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's what? Voice. Therefore, my joy is fulfilled. Very interesting statement. Here John describes the Messiah in the context of marriage. Who's the bride in this passage? It's none other than the church, right? The Bible, the bride of Christ is a symbol of his people, the church. You can write down Ephesians 5, 25, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 2, and many other passages, the bride or the woman represents the church. And if the church is the bride, who's the bridegroom? It's Christ. He is our heavenly husband. We are his earthly bride. And then, who is the third character that John mentioned here? The friend of the bridegroom that John himself claimed to be. The friend of the bridegroom was basically the best man in the wedding. The one that was closest to the bridegroom. And the responsibility of the best man, the friend of the bridegroom, was that he was responsible of making arrangements for the wedding. 
His goal was to do all that he could to relieve the stress and anxiety of the bridegroom. His role, he was to be the middleman of communication between the groom and the bride. He was the messenger between the betrothed parties preparing for the wedding. And when the bridegroom finally received the bride face to face, the mission of the friend of the bridegroom was fulfilled. And so that best man, when he sees the groom and the bride coming together face to face, his mission is accomplished, and now he rejoices in the happiness of the union that he had promoted, and that was the role of John the Baptist. He wasn't just a part of the bride of Christ, the church, but he was also the friend of the bridegroom, the, 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 the best man in the wedding, and thus he said that his joy was fulfilled, and that's how our joy is fulfilled as well. Just by hearing the bridegroom's voice and the joy he has, once he's reunited with his church. Our joy, friends, our joy is fulfilled, not in the recognition of the rulers, nor in the praises of the people, but only that we can play a part in preparing the union of the bride and the bridegroom. Friends, how many of you want to be a part of the bride of Christ? Amen. And even more than that, how many of you want to be a friend of the bridegroom? Amen. Amen. And that's a wonderful and beautiful picture that John painted concerning Jesus. Now, I want us to notice in, in the two passages we just read, we see that John called Jesus the Lamb, and he also called Jesus the Bridegroom. There are two pictures that John painted concerning the Messiah. One is more theological, and the other is more practical. One is more doctrinal, the other is more relational. The more theological and doctrinal picture that John painted was that of the Lamb. The, excuse me, the, the relational and the practical is that of the bridegroom. And so we see that John the Baptist gave a complete and balanced picture of the Messiah. He's not just the theological lamb, but he's also the relational bridegroom that is married to us. That was the message of the first forerunner, so it will be the message of the final forerunners. This is what John said about Jesus, and friends, what we say about Jesus to the world must be clear, it must be complete, and it must be balanced. Amen. And here's the reason. Today, friends, we are living during a crisis of theology. Bad theology abounds in the Christian world today because just like the Jews of old misinterpreted the Scriptures and thus misrepresented the character of the Messiah to the world, so too Christianity today has done the exact same thing. Heresies and half-truths are being spread far and wide concerning the character of God. The character of God is being misrepresented and maligned, not just by the world, but even by the church. And as a result, atheism and unbelief has been the reaction of the world. As, as the Christian community is painting a tainted picture of who God is, many people are reacting in unbelief. And because bad theology, because of bad theology, an overcorrection and an overreaction has actually taken place in the church to the point that we have emphasized orthodoxy, to the point that we have become Pharisees, to the point that we would rather win an argument than win a soul. We come across as critical and judgmental and harsh and mean and lacking grace. Remember, friends, it's not just about what we say, but how we say it and when we say it. Amen. What we're doing is this. 
We're emphasizing the rightness of truth while missing the person of truth. We are proclaiming the Word of God, but not painting a true picture of the God of the Word with one-sided preaching. What we're doing is we're pointing to the theology of the Lamb, but we're not pointing to the character of the bridegroom. And this imbalanced emphasis has caused many people to crash into the ditch of legalism, which is on the right side of the narrow way of the Lord. And as a result of this imbalanced emphasis, people crashing into the ditch of legalism, preaching the theology of the Lamb without pointing to the character of the bridegroom, an another reaction and overcorrection has taken place on the other side. People are crashing into the ditch of liberalism, legalism on the right, liberalism on the left. Because see, there's not only a crisis of theology in the world, but there's also a crisis of relevancy. We're trying to be relevant to the world by trying to become like the world. But in seeking to become like the world, we are actually becoming irrelevant to the world. And here's the reason. If the church becomes postmodern progressives like the world, she loses her relevance because if you look like me, think like me, speak like me, and live like me, then what's the difference? You see, friends, we are relevant. That which makes us relevant, I should say, is because we have something different, and not only different, but we have something better to offer to the world. Can you say amen? amen. So we can't, be try, we can't try to be like the world to win the world. We lose our relevance if we do that. We are relevant because we have something different. We have something better. And the watchword of all true education is something better. We have something better to offer amen. than the world views of the world today. But friends, this, what is being called as progressive Christianity, is causing many people to downplay objective doctrine and to exalt and elevate a subjective personal experience. Many people in Christianity today are becoming more and more focused on questions rather than the clear-cut answers that God has given us in the world. That's what the daughters of Babylon are doing. They're saying it's not about doctrine. Let's put aside all of those things. It's an overreaction. The same thing has been happening perhaps even among us. It seems like ecumenism is emerging even among us. It's an overreaction, friends. There are two ditches on either side of the narrow road of God's way, legalism and liberalism. And that's why it's been said in the book, Many will stand in our pulpits with the torch of false prophecy in their hands, kindled from the hellish torch of Satan. Wow. Lord, have mercy. And that's the reason why I want to challenge and encourage all of us young people that we must study the Bible for ourselves. Can you say amen? We can't take a man's word for it just, becomes, just because it comes from an approved pulpit doesn't mean that it is true. We must study to show ourselves approved unto God. And in order to avoid the two ditches on either side of the way of the Lord, the ditch of legalism and the ditch of liberalism, we must study for ourselves and we must give the complete, balanced, whole picture of Jesus, not just a, 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 a picture of Christ based upon a few scriptures, but of all the Word of God because Jesus says that the scriptures testify of Him. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, and that's not just one prophet in the last days. It's God speaking through all the prophets from the beginning to the end. And friends, that's what John came to do. Based upon what he understood, he sought to give a complete picture of who the Messiah was. And in order to avoid the ditches, we must prepare the way of the Lord. You see, as we do this, true progressivism will be restored. You see, friends, I want, I want to share this with you. What is called progressive Christianity today is not really taking us forward, but it's taking us backward. It's actually taking us all the way back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When the serpent said to the woman, has God said? He was causing her to doubt that which God had clearly said. This is higher criticism. This is the origin of higher criticism. When the serpent said, you will not surely die. In other words, God does not mean exactly what he says. That's progressivism. That's what is labeled as progressivism. But it's taken us back to the Garden of Eden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You see, what the serpent said there is, you know, God is not telling the truth. He doesn't mean exactly what he says. If you eat of this fruit, you won't die, but you will be like God. Knowing good and evil, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be enlightened. In other words, it's all relative. That's what the devil was saying. It's all relative. You can be your own God. You can make your own decisions. You can make your own law because truth is relative. And you can continue to sin and still be like God and still be saved. And this postmodern progressivism is saying the exact same thing. It's not really taking us forward. It's taking us backward. You see, my friends, to be truly progressive, we got to move forward. And in order to move forward, we have to have a clear way in front of us. And in order to have a clear way, we, like John the Baptist, have to prepare the way of the Lord. Are you with me, yes or no? Yes. And so what does it mean then to prepare the way of the Lord? What does that mean? Well, some of you already know the verse I'm going to next. Where is God's way illustrated for us? The way of salvation is found in Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But before Jesus came into the world, where was that way illustrated? Psalm 77 says, thy way. Oh God is where? In the sanctuary. You see, when you look at the sanctuary, friends, you actually see a path that leads from darkness into light. A path that leads from the outer court where the lamb was slain all the way into the holy place and into the most holy place where the bridegroom awaits us. You see, the way of the Lord that needs to be prepared before Jesus can come is that way that's illustrated in the sanctuary, the true way of salvation, a straight path that leads from the lamb slain in the outer court to the groom that's waiting for us in the most holy place. You see, that most holy place, if you study it, it's the bedroom chamber of God. It's the secret place of the Most High. It's the place of ultimate intimacy. It's the place where the bride and the groom become one in atonement, at one meant. You know the book Song of Solomon? That book describes the union of a husband and wife. And did you, did you know that the Jews, they call the Bible holy? But when it comes to the book, The Song of Solomon, they call that book of the Bible the Holy of Holies. 
The Song of Solomon, they say, is the most holy place. It's when the bride and groom become one, atonement, at one meant. Here is where the marriage is consummated, where the bride is sealed for all eternity. This is where the sin of the world is taken away. You see, friends, the ransom in the outer court where the lamb was slain is what prepares for the reunion of the bride and the bridegroom in the most holy place. So to prepare the way of the Lord is to restore the path that leads all the way back to seeing our heavenly husband face to face. Can you say amen? amen. That's the path that the first forerunner came to prepare or to begin to make straight. But it's that same path that the final forerunners will actually finish in making straight. And so remember, friends, it doesn't matter so much what you say about yourself, but what you say about Jesus. And what we say about Christ must be complete. He's not just the lamb. He's also the groom. In order to be God's faithful voice, let's give that complete message. You see, we need to be relational in our theology in order to have relevancy. But our relationships need to be based on sound theology in order to have eternal permanency. Because, friends, when the storm hits, all the heresies and half-truths and creeping compromise are going to be washed away, and only the truth as it is in Jesus is going to remain. And so, let us go and make straight the way of the Lord. Let's avoid the two ditches on either side. Let's point people to Jesus, the lamb in the outer court, and the groom in the most holy place. John was great in the sight of the Lord because he gave that message, let us do the same. But friends, it's not so much what we even say about Jesus that makes us great, but rather it's what Jesus says about us. Amen. Amen. So now I invite you to turn with me to our, our next point as we go to the book of Matthew, chapter 11. And I want us to notice what Jesus said concerning John the Baptist. Matthew, chapter 11, and verse 7. The Bible says this. Matthew, chapter 11, in verse 7, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Here Christ is making a contrast to the life and character of John the Baptist, to that of a reed that's shaken and moved by the wind of circumstance. And the obvious answer to the question that Jesus is asking is that John was not like a shaken reed. He was not one that was so easily moved by the, by the opinions of the day and the circumstances of his life. Instead of being like a shaking reed, John was like an unmovable rock. That's what Jesus said about John. He was unmovable. He was firm. He had spiritual backbone. He stood up for the truth. And so, number one, two things I wanna sh that Jesus says about John that I want to highlight. Number one, John the Baptist was unmovable for the cause of Christ. And then notice the next verse, verse 8. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in what kind of garments? Soft, soft garments. Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. So in contrast to the kings that like to wear soft, comfortable clothes, John the Baptist was not like that. The point that Jesus is making is that John the Baptist was not only unmovable for the cause of the Messiah, but he was also willing to be uncomfortable, uncomfortable for the cause of Christ. My friends, many people are failing of reaching their full potential because they are afraid of leaving their comfort zone. But friends, there is no growth in the comfort zone. 
and many times there's no comfort in the growth zone. If we want to grow, we have to get out of the comfort zone. We have to be willing to stand up and stand out and not be ashamed or afraid to speak up and speak out for the cause of Christ. Amen. We need to speak the truth. We need to do it in love. And as we go, that's how we grow. Can you say amen? amen? There is no growth in the comfort zone, and there is no comfort in the growth zone, only the fact that the comfort of the Holy Spirit is with us, and He is growing us and preparing us for the kingdom. Amen. And so what enables us to leave the comfort zone for the cause of Christ is when we remember that Jesus, our heavenly King, left the comfort zone for you and me. He left the throne of glory, the beautiful mansions above, born in a barn in a manger, a very uncomfortable manger, grew up in poverty, misunderstood by his peers and even his parents, and then he hung naked on a cruel Roman cross. Oh, friends, that was so uncomfortable. But Jesus did it for us. And that love demonstrated therein is the power that enables us to leave the comfort zones, our comfort zones for Him. Can you say amen? amen? Friends, in these last days, God is looking for an army that is not moved by comfort, but moved by Holy Spirit conviction. An army that is more concerned with God's glory than their own reputation. You see, friends, we have to be willing to be uncomfortable and unmovable because the stage is set for the final crisis to break upon us, and it's going to be uncomfortable. But in that moment, God wants us to be unmovable. I'll never forget going door to door. A few years back, we were co-porting, doing big books in a real bad city in California, very dangerous city. It was on a Sunday afternoon that we're going door to door, but it wasn't an ordinary Sunday. It was a very special Sunday here in America. It was Super Bowl Sunday. During the game, we're going door to door because we knew that everyone would be home, right? And we were facing rejection after rejection after rejection, but it didn't matter because the sooner they rejected us, the quicker we could go to the next house and find the person that was interested. And so we're, we're heading down the street, and on the other side of the street, we saw a, a group of brothers in the garage watching the football game, drinking and partying and whatnot, and, and we knew that, that, that we're going to head to that house soon. So as we're knocking the doors on one side of the street, we're praying for those brothers on the other side. We cross the street, and now their house is the next house. They saw us coming from the distance. They knew that what we were doing because they saw us walking on the other side of the street. So they knew that their house was the next house. So from a distance, they started shouting at us and yelling at us, saying, you don't want to come here. We're not interested in what you have to say. Keep right on going. You see, the devil did not want me to go to that house because he knew that something powerful was going to happen. So I just made like I didn't hear what they were saying, and I just walked right up to the garage, right up to their house. And they couldn't believe that I had the audacity to do that. And so these five or six Hispanic brothers started surrounding my partner and I, and they tried to intimidate us. I mean, they were drinking, they were partying and whatnot, and, and one guy got in my face and started shouting at me. And he was saying, what are you doing? You're wasting your time out here. Uh, when was the last time you saw God? How can you believe in this that you've never seen before? You know, it wasn't, uncom it wasn't a comfortable situation. Alcoholic breath, spit flying on me. It wasn't a pretty sight, but thank the Lord I had good devotions that morning. Amen? Amen. Thank the Lord I was prayed up that morning. 
I have the armor of God, and so by God's grace, even though it was uncomfortable, I would not be moved. I stood right there because this individual was asking a very good question. His question, when was the last time you saw God? How can you believe in something that you cannot see? Is that a good question? Yeah. Absolutely. So I tried to answer, but he wouldn't let me talk. And so finally I said, hey, I have an answer. Are you ready to hear it? So he stopped talking long. And by the way, my, my other partner, I don't think he had good devotions that morning. <laughs> because he started backing up. Hey, you guys are drunk. And he left me. <laughs> I was all by myself, but I wasn't alone because God was with me. Amen. The Bible says that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. And so it was uncomfortable, but I stood my ground and I tried to answer the question and I finally said, hey, I have the answer. He stopped talking long enough for me to give the answer and I said, let me answer your question with a question. That's the method of Christ. Let me answer your question with a question. Have you ever seen your brain before? I asked. He was half drunk, so he didn't know where I was going with this. So he said, no. And I said, oh, well, how do you know you have one then? Got him thinking. And I said, have you ever seen the wind before? No, you can't see the wind, but if you notice this tree right here, it's moving because the wind is blowing. And I told him, I don't believe in God because I've seen him with my eyes. I believe in him because he has moved so beautifully in my life. And I started sharing my te personal testimony. How I used to be a druggie, a pothead. I was chasing the world and burning up my brain cells, not caring about anyone but myself. And I, and I shared with him how the Lord had rescued me and made me free. And that's the reason why I was going door to door. And as I was sharing my testimony with him, all of a sudden he said, you know, I wish God would send someone in my life to help me stop doing what I'm doing. I'm sick of my life. And when he said that, tears filled his eyes. He was a tough guy. But the Holy Spirit was breaking him down. He started to cry, then he ran away because he didn't want his friends to see him crying, so he, 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 he left. And so I went after him. And when I got to where he was, he said, why are, you, why are you doing this, man? You're making me cry. You're making me think. Why are you doing this? I said, I'm not doing anything. Right now, God is moving on your heart, my friend. And I started telling him about the love of Jesus, how Christ would accept him just as he was, but wouldn't leave him as he was, how Christ would win the victory in his life. He was listening, and he received the book, Steps to Christ. Amen. 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 Friends, in these last days, God is calling us to go out of the comfort zone for his cause. There are souls all around us that need to see the things that we have seen, to hear the things we have heard, and to know the great God that we know. So let us go and make him known to others. Amen. Amen. We must be uncomfortable and unmovable. Because, friends, in these last days, in this crisis hour, our faith is going to be severely tested, just like John the Baptist. And if we have been wearied with the footmen, what are we going to do when the horses come? What are we going to do when the time of trouble hits, friends? We need to pray, Lord, make me uncomfortable in this world and unmovable in this walk. Amen. Uncomfortable in the world. Unmovable in the walk. And so that's what Jesus said about John. Then notice what he said in verse 9. Matthew 11 and verse 9 but what went you out to see a prophet yes I say to you and what more than a prophet then jump down first verse 11 assuredly I say to you among those born of women there is not risen a greater than John the Baptist but he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he friends it's a, it's beautiful here we find Jesus God in the flesh giving a great stamp of approval on the life of John 
He says that John is more than the prophet, and there hasn't been one greater than him. Friends, as we contemplate these words, this confirmation of Christ, there's a strange and disturbing dichotomy between the life that Jesus affirmed and the death that John experienced. Because John the Baptist, we know that the end of the story was that he was in a cold, dark dungeon in prison for preaching the truth. And I can imagine that as John was in that dungeon cell, he had to have been thinking to himself, if Jesus came to, to preach deliverance to the captives, why does he not set me free? You see, John the Baptist himself did not have a complete understanding of the Messiah's character. And I can imagine that his faith in that dungeon cell was tested. His faith faltered, but it did not fail. And what he experienced is what we will experience in these last days. We're going to go through a similar test, a time of shaking, a time called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's our own personal Gethsemane experience where our will must die so that God's will can be accomplished. It is the cross that comes before the crown. It is the crucifixion that comes before the resurrection. It's the rain that precedes the rainbow. It's the pit and the prison before the heavenly palace. It is the time that will try our souls to the uttermost, a time that we will be forsaken of men and seemingly forgotten by God. And perhaps you're there right now today. Perhaps you've already been in that shaking, testing experience. Maybe you're experiencing this morning a, a major health issue that is draining the hope out of you. Perhaps you feel crushed by an overwhelming debt. You have school loans to repay. Your house has gone into foreclosure. You don't know how to, you're going to provide for your family. Or maybe you're a young person and your parents have gone through or are going through a devastating divorce and you're confused and you're angry. Maybe you, your friends have betrayed you and your fiancé has walked out on you. Maybe your spouse has left you for somebody else, your children disrespecting you, your parents are, have forsaken you, or maybe there's a loved one that's abusing you. And you're in that cold, dark dungeon like John the Baptist was, and you're asking the question, why? And as you pray, it seems like heaven is deaf to your cries. Such was the situation of John the Baptist. How can one called so great be left to perish in a cold, dark dungeon all by himself? How can one that was so affirmed by Christ be left to lose his head? Well, friends, the key is this. Even though John was by himself, he wasn't alone. It only seemed that way. The book Desire of Ages 2.24 says, Though no miraculous deliverance was granted John, he was not forsaken. He always had the companionship of heavenly angels who opened to him the prophecies concerning Christ and the precious promises of Scripture. These were his stay as they were to be the stay of God's people through the coming ages. And so, my brothers and my sisters, if you find yourself all by yourself, remember that you're not alone, that God is with us to the very end. God is with us in the prison and in the pit the same way he's with us in the pew and in the pulpit. God is always there, even though we don't feel like he's there. He is our shining light when we're surrounded by darkness. 
Our God is our faithful friend when all others have forsaken us. He is our saving shield when we're being attacked from all sides. He is our compassionate comforter when we got no one to turn to. He is our living bread when we have nothing to eat. Our living water when we're dying of thirst. He is our healing balm when we've been wounded by sin. He is our lifeguard when we're being pulled down by the strong currents of our own sinful flesh. He is our guiding compass when we've lost our way and have no one to turn to. He is our stable voice when we've lost all words and when we don't know what to say. He is our solidifying purpose when we have no other reason to live. He is our solid rock when all the foundations have been washed away. He is our breath of life when we're drowning in discouragement and despair. He is, friends, the great I am, not the I was or the I will be, the great I am. That's present tense, the one that is with us in every single situation, in every single difficulty, the present tense God, our ever-present help in time of need. And friends, if there was ever a time that we needed the Lord, we sure do need him now. How many of you need Jesus? He is the I am. You fill in the blank. Whatever you need him to be, I am. He is our friend when we don't have any more friends, our shelter when we're homeless, our bread when we have nothing to eat. How many of you are thankful for Jesus? Amen. I want you to notice, trials will come, so let it come. But here's what God says. In the book, Desire of Ages, page 224, we're almost finished. It says this. Oh, I love this passage. It's in the context of the death of John the Baptist. It says, God never leads his children. Otherwise, then they would choose to be led. We're in Desire of Ages, page 224. If they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. Did you catch that? God never leads us. Otherwise, then we would choose to be led if we could see the end from the beginning like he does. In other words, if you're going through something this morning and, and, and you'd rather not go through it, well, friends, if you knew what God is going to bring out of that situation, you would be, yes, I want to go through this situation. And then it says, not Enoch, who was translated to heaven, not Elijah, who ascended in the chariot of fire, was greater or more honored than John the Baptist, who perished alone in the dungeon. You have Enoch, Elijah, and John the Baptist. Which one do you want to be? We want to be like Enoch, isn't that right? Translated without seeing death. Oh, we don't mind being like Elijah, caught up in that ch uh, chariot of fire. But to be like John the Baptist in the dungeon, normally that's not our first choice, isn't that right? But it says here that Elijah and Enoch were not more honored than John the Baptist, even though he lost his head in the dungeon. And then it says, unto you it is given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. And of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men, fellowship with Christ in his sufferings is the most weighty trust and the highest honor. My friends, come what may, God is with us. He is always faithful. His presence will go with us. His love will embrace us. His grace will sustain us. His mighty arm will protect us. And if we perish alone in the dungeon, His voice will resurrect us. And so don't worry, friends, about being great. 
in the sight of the world, but great in the sight of the Lord. And as we conclude, what makes us great? Three things. Not what we, uh, number one, what we say about ourselves. He must increase, we must decrease. Number two, what we say about Jesus. He's not only the lamb, he's also the bridegroom. And number three, what Jesus says about us. Unmovable and uncomfortable for the sake of Christ. How many of you want to be that voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord? My last verse, John chapter 1 and verse 37, is I believe the greatest compliment that can be said concerning God's people. It was said of John, may it be said of us. John chapter 1 and verse 37, the Bible says, and the two disciples heard him speak, referring to John the Baptist. They heard John speak. They heard that voice crying in the wilderness. And what did they do when they heard the voice? It says, and they followed Jesus. They did not follow the man. They followed the lamb. That's the greatest thing, compliment that can be said concerning God's voices. They heard us speak, and they followed Jesus. May that be said of us. May that be said of you. How many of you want to have that experience that when people hear us speak, they follow Jesus? Friends, it's been a pleasure sharing this time with you in these past few days. As we face a brand new year with brand new challenges and brand new victories, let us never forget that we've been called, we've been chosen, by God's grace, let us be faithful. And if I never see you again, if we never meet each other again in this world, by God's grace, let us commit this morning that we will meet again in God's eternal kingdom because they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Are you going to be there? Let's pray that we will all be there. Let us close this morning. Father in heaven, thank you so much, dear God, for your amazing grace, your marvelous mercy, for calling us, for choosing us even when we did not choose you. Lord, forgive us for using our voices for our own gain, for our own glory. Lord, make us like John the Baptist, more so make us like Jesus. Make us your voice that proclaims your word, that points people to the Lamb that died for us and the bridegroom that's returning for us. We thank you so much for the experience we've had together. Bless us as we get ready to depart today, as we descend from this mountaintop experience as we go to the valleys below where people are dying, Lord, may we be the light. Make us the light of the world. And Father, as we're about to experience a great time of trouble, give us your faithfulness and help us to trust in your faithfulness. Thank you for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Let all of God's children say, Amen. Thank you.
Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.